listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder, where we are bringing science into focus for the next hour. I'm Kate. I'm a neuroscientist. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Kai. Kai, how's it going? I'm going pretty well, Kate. How are you? I'm, look, I'm going. I feel like that's, that's just my <laughs> standard answer at the moment. I was like, how's it going? I'm like, it's, it's sure going. going. It's going somewhere. Time keeps passing, uh, but I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. This is the best way to spend a Friday afternoon. It I love this. Good. This, is, this is the highlight of my life. Anyway, Kai, why are you here? Who are you? Give us, you know, I'm a neuroscientist. Who are you? I'm a physicist. Justify your credentials. <laughs> I do science, I promise. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you all about it. Uh, yeah. And today we have a guest. We've got Bianca. Hi. How's Hi, it going? Bianca. Good, good. Excited to be here and chat about our work. Yeah. 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 Very excited to hear a little bit more about some of your work later as we talk about babies. <laughs> yep. Today's episode is all about babies and Kai's just laughing at the un- like discomfort on my face as I say babies because I'm just like it's my reaction to babies. Yeah, but babies. anyway, okay. there's some cool science out and about there and I've got some I've got is. some fun things and I'm sure we'll discuss some fun things in a second, but as usual, we're going to start off the show with some news. So Kai, do you want to start us off with some fun science news from this week? All right, I'll start you off with a, with a question. What okay. do plastic bottles and the planet Neptune have in common? <laughs> I was going to say the letter, and then I just had to stop and like spell them both out in my head, and P. The letter P is the first they common letter, letter that they share. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. the best answer I've got. I'm sorry. Um, another thing that they have in common is nano diamonds. Oh, that, that was going to be my next guess, <laughs> Obviously. but you, you jumped in there. Yeah. Um, nano diamond. Okay, yeah, okay. Next so, question. What's a nano diamond? We'll get Just there. Just like a really small it's diamond. It's a really small diamond. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but planetary scientists believe that in the thick, high pressure atmospheres of ice giant planets like Uranus and Neptune, that the conditions might be just right for the formation of diamonds. Now, that's whack wow yeah like and then you know to really put a spin on this like diamonds forming in the atmosphere then it's going to be raining diamonds oh my gosh (laughs) take me there immediately but i mean like the atmosphere in scare quotes is not really an atmosphere well yeah because like like, the pressure is high enough breathe right (laughs) if diamonds can exist i can't the temperature and pressure is high enough to create diamonds you're probably not gonna have a very fun time but yeah it is a, a pretty image to form in your mind of it raining diamonds Mm. um yeah so what they're doing these scientists is testing the conditions for forming nano diamonds and they've done this by firing lasers at (laughs) here it is (laughs) i was waiting for the lasers yeah you got me um firing lasers at pet plastic so this is the same Mm -hmm. plastic used in plastic bottles right yeah and they find that this is a good like target for this experiment because it contains similar elements to what you might find in ice giant atmospheres things like carbon hydrogen oxygen sort of all like but doesn't everything predominantly have carbon hydrogen yeah, and oxygen? like does. that might be a really silly question <laughs> but does. i feel like hydrocarbons are the pretty much foundation everywhere. of our entire life that's, right that's true <laughs> but i think they found that the ratios and like yeah, okay. the prevalence of some yeah. of the lighter elements is like it's okay in Shooting these plastic, plastic bottles. bottles with lasers makes diamonds. Yeah. And the way Heck. that works is that the high energy laser pulses cause uh-huh. a high pressure shock wave. Yeah. Like very small and localized, but this is enough to form tiny diamonds. Right. And you might have guessed by the name that they're That's only crazy. a few nanometers in size, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. means they only contain like about a thousand carbon atoms. 
Wow. Yeah, which okay. Which is pretty crazy to think of something like... Yeah, like you can almost conceptualize. That's... Yeah. You oh. can count to a thousand if yeah, you... Yeah, if you committed. really wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> if you were like super bored. Yeah. So, uh, so apart from being really cool, this research, they want to, you know, figure out what are the temp- temperature and pressure requirements for creating diamonds and uh-huh. is it likely to find it on other planets? I was going to say, are they specifically trying to make the nano diamonds they because are. of their nano, like nano gives them super properties or something? Absolutely. Or are they, gosh, I'm such a not physicist. No, uh- no, you're, you're right on the money because nano diamonds, they're one of those things that everyone's exploring what they might be useful for. They're not yeah. like super widely used yet, but there's various potential applications. Mm-hmm. The first one you might be able to just think of is like an abrasive like sandpaper, but really small. A bit, a bit bougie. <laughs> sandpaper, but make a diamond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So other ones you might be more interested in are things like targeted drug delivery. Oh, you got me. <laughs> because apparently nano diamonds like oh. can like traverse the blood brain. Yeah, barrier. yeah. No, actually, I have heard of this. Yes. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yep. Yeah. So nano diamonds. Mm-hmm could be potentially very, very useful in the future. And shooting lasers at plastic Mm. is actually much easier than other methods like using explosives to like explode and create high pressure. Mm, mm. So yeah, that's... Does it use enough plastic that this could also be like a really cool way to deal with waste in the future? Like, are we going to like solve our like world's trash problem? problem? Plastic... Get the um, plastic out of the oceans and shoot it with lasers to make diamonds instead. That sounds good to me. It's like, would be good. I don't know if that's that's the stage they're at now. Yeah, but okay. Maybe I'm, I'm getting too ahead of myself. Um, yeah. I'll save it for my next <laughs> sci-fi book that I don't write. <laughs> yep. Anyway, how about some science facts? Let's hear some news. <sighs> yeah, okay. I've got some news because... So... <laughs> Scrolling through all the media releases of recently published studies, as I often do when finding my news for this show. Um, so I came across this headline, which was, when doctors are burnt out, patients are less safe. And I was okay. like, why Why is this research being funded? Like, I could have told you this, right? Like, this seems like common sense. But then also, I mean... Um, Points and credit where credit is due, it was actually an effective psychom strategy because my frustration did in fact lead me to clicking on that title and reading more. So, you know, props to them. But like what I learned was really interesting. So researchers from the University of Manchester just published a huge meta-analysis. So a study that essentially combines data from like multiple studies to give an overall result. And they looked at 170 studies involving over 200,000 doctors. So this is like... Mm -hmm a massive like the most massive study of this type that's that's been done and they they, yeah they found this really surprising groundbreaking thing that doctors who are burnt out do their job less well (laughs) um but they also they got more specific information than that so they found that doctors are twice as likely to be involved in patient safety incidents if burnt out and over twice as likely to relieve to receive sorry low satisfaction ratings gosh i can words well today (laughs) friday afternoon folks they were twice as likely to receive these low satisfaction ratings from patients. So first of all, doctors that are tired or burnt out, sorry, are actually causing harm to patients and reducing care by like twice as much. Like that's wow. that's crazy. And they also found like specifically that burnout levels are highest in hospital settings mm-hmm. and in doctors working in emergency medicine and intensive care, while it's lowest mm-hmm. in general practitioners, you could, you know, that, that makes sense to Seems me, but it's, it's still good to have this kind of concrete evidence that like, this is maybe where we should be targeting our focus. Interestingly, they found that the association between burnout and poorer job satisfaction was highest in doctors aged 31 to 50, whereas the association between burnout and patient safety 
incidence was greater in doctors aged 20 to 30 years. And so this might just reflect like experience levels. Obviously, younger doctors are probably less experienced, less experienced. so more likely to make mistakes when tired, etc. But like this is also actually really informative in terms of where to focus any attempts mm-hmm. to help the situation, which I guess kind of brings me to the point of like, why is this research important? Like I kind of laughed at it when I saw the title, but you know, previous studies have highlighted concerns that burnout, which I guess I should have said they defined as emotional exhaustion, cynicism and detachment from the job and a feeling of reduced personal accomplishment um, is reaching essentially what these scientists have called global, global epidemic levels among physicians and that Mm. the field of medicine is nearing a crisis point. And there are plenty of studies across like so many different countries highlighting the, the high rate of reported burnout amongst doctors, like, well, that it is high, but there's not really been anything done to address and fix it because there is or was until now um, a lack of solid research emphasizing this association between burnout and quality of patient care, which yeah. like maybe we should also care about our doctors. They're humans, too. <laughs> but sure, like I, I can see how like emphasizing how this is then having a downstream effect on the patients is, is making people. Well, the researchers are essentially hoping that, you know, in publishing such a comprehensive analysis that healthcare organizations will be prompted to invest more time and effort into like implementing strategies to mitigate burnout. Yeah. So by highlighting just how real of an impact this is having on patient safety, they're hoping that the sector starts paying more attention to this problem. But beyond that, by figuring out like which parts of the sector are most at risk in terms of like which doctors and which age groups, etc. Um, these organizations have a bit more of a roadmap now as to where to focus their efforts to begin with. This is, you know, and like, I think it's sad that we need this, you know, (laughs) that we need a study to be like, hey, let's respect all our humans and working too hard will break you. Um, But, you know, if this is what it takes for people to take overworking and burnout a bit more seriously, then I fully support it because I know that I don't take burnout and working (laughs) too much seriously. So maybe I need a study about PhD students and burnout. You're not dealing with patients that need your care. No, but I do work with live animals that do need my care. Yeah. Um, so there is there is some ethics, like mm-hmm. I don't know. I I maybe should also just take my own advice and and look after myself. <laughs> um, so that's my that's my science news for the week. I just I don't know. Do we want to? We mentioned last week that the Ig Nobel prizes we were did. happening. Um, you want to give us a brief rundown of some of the the highlights? Yeah. Look, I, they were only announced like this morning. Yeah. Sometime. Yeah. They were they were seven hours ago actually. Yeah. Is when breaking I got, news here on you know, Radio Silence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These, so Ig Nobel Prize, do you want to just quickly give yeah, us yeah. a so summary of what the Ig Nobel, Ig Nobel are for Prizes people who don't know? are like the tagline of science that like, you know, what is it? I've forgotten now. Makes oh, you learn something. Science and then, that makes you think. And then. Oh, sorry, makes, makes you, you laugh, laugh and, and then, then makes think. you think. Yeah. So like this thing that I um, found has, <laughs> if the Nobel Prize is the grandparent of the prestigious prizes in science, then the Ig Nobel Prize is the funny uncle. <laughs> and it just that just like further affirms that, that I want to win an Ig Nobel. If I'm going to win anything, it's yeah, going to be this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to give you an example, like, yeah, they're, they're, they're all ridiculous, but a couple of the best ones from this year, we've got... <laughs> The biology prize uh, went to a team based in Brazil and Colombia for a study looking at how constipation affects the mating prospects of scorpions. <laughs> so scorpions are similar to lizards in that they'll drop their tail if they need to escape a particularly tricky predator. I did not know that. However, unlike lizards, their tails don't grow back and losing it means they lose 20% of their body mass and part of their digestive tract and anus, hence the constipation. <laughs> Luckily, the team found that there was no immediately, immediate effect on their ability to move and that scorpions still have a couple months before they die of constipation to uh, find a mate. Okay. That that was a legitimate study that deserves a prize, I think. Uh, Definitely. Um, And then we've got the 
safety engineering prize, <laughs> which went to a Swedish re- researcher um, where he created a moose crash test dummy. Um, so I saw the photos of this. Yeah. It looks pretty funny. It's just like basically a big barrel shaped thing with legs. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. yeah, he's apparently spent a lot of time thinking about like the different properties of the, you know, using steel and rubber to get like yeah. the most moose like properties he could. And then Incredible. they crash cars into it. <laughs> And then I have to just do a shout out to like, it, it, it's the art history prize. So not science, but um, hilarious nonetheless. It's fantastic because <laughs> they found that uh, ancient Mayans used enemas to get high. Um, so these people were looking at pottery, uh, ancient Mayan pottery. Um, and yeah, showing, looking at the artwork on there and they essentially figured out that ritual enemas were used to maximize the efficiency of drug delivery and that all these uh, well-off Mayans were using ritual enemas to get high. And honestly, that, that research deserves a prize. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's today, this week in, in important science news. Um, <laughs> Nano diamonds, tired Dr. doctors and, and high Mayans. Um, but we're going to launch into a fun episode all about babies. So, of course, our first song, we've got Baby One More Time by Britney Spears. You're listening to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. And today we're talking about the science of babies. And we've got a guest in the studio, Bianca. Hello. Science babies. Science I just babies. love that as a topic. <laughs> That should be my, like, LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> no, it won't no. be. <laughs> so tell us about what you're researching in yeah. the science of babies. So I'm in my second year of a PhD at the moment with the Therapeutics Discovery and Vascular Function Group. Mm-hmm. Um, so we look at the time before we actually get the baby, so during pregnancy, um, and we look at a couple of complications of pregnancy that happen uh-huh. that typically um, result in really high blood pressure in the mother, um, and that has really detrimental effects for her, the baby, and also both of their lives in the long term. Um, ones that I look at in particular are preeclampsia. So that's when mums get really, really high blood pressure mm-hmm. and their organs start to fail as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and also gestational diabetes. Um, but our team also looks at preterm births. So that's when babies are born too early or fetal growth restriction as well. So that's when they're too small for their gestational age. But all of them primarily result in a sort of placental environment that's either it hasn't been formed properly or um, there's something wrong and it starts releasing toxins that can affect the mum's system as well. Cool. So this is going to make me even more terrified of the idea of being pregnant. (laughs) Yes, us looking at all of these, it's definitely... Another reason why we don't want children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. So I just, sorry, I'm just, yeah, my brain. Wow. So good. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was just thinking that like the, the first one that you were talking about, like the high blood pressure. Yeah. So preeclampsia is really, really serious. Like um, especially the organ failure part of it. So they can get. Uh, their kidneys start to fail, so they don't uh, filter the blood mm. properly. They can have liver damage. Um, they can have brain symptoms like seizures, um, headaches. And 
the mum and the baby can actually die from it Um, and we don't really have a cure which is our group kind of wants to find or Mm. we do want to find um, a treatment that's that's better than than what they do. Yes, yes. So currently we have aspirin as a preventative so they will see what women are at high risk so Mm -hmm. that includes BMI, age, if they've had it before, if they've had high blood pressure before um, and they'll give aspirin early on, but it's not really mm. that effective. Is that because aspirin is a blood thinner, right? Yeah. So uh-huh. a thought is that maybe it helps in preventing clots. Yep. So when you look at placental insufficiency, we love placentas in pregnancy <laughs> development. That's sort of a quirky thing that you can bring to the uh, table. I just really want to ask you the question of like, you know, eating your placenta. Like the, yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a thing. Yeah, it is a thing. Like so, a, is that actually a good thing? It, or is I, this just like a myth? I don't know. I don't know these things. <laughs> I pick this up from like TV shows that I watch. Yeah. Like I, it's definitely a thing. Um, so we collect placentas obviously we consent we collect them we look at them uh gene expression protein but some people do say no or they ask for it back because they want to eat it um or you can turn it <laughs> yeah. i think you can dehydrate okay. it and put it in a, Into pill. a pill yeah um That's... my thought is it's like aged dead tissue that like mm. it's that's what i already releasing thought, right? things I that i don't want to eat <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i think the thought is that because it's this interface that provides yeah so yeah. much nutrients to grow a fetus that maybe that's beneficial but also like but, the nutritional needs of a fully grown you know person of age that you can get pregnant versus a like fetus, <laughs> fetus. are different <laughs> yes different you have different nutritional needs so it's dead tissue I don't know, like, research into yeah. like whether this is a good thing or not. um you know? there is and that the the research is that it doesn't really do anything yeah, of okay. benefit so i wouldn't and it looks pretty gross like, yeah. <laughs> so if you've got a placenta <laughs> don't eat it give it to bianca to study yeah cool we or you can eat it after i look <laughs> i wouldn't want to do that either <laughs> no, don't eat it to science instead no uh, that's yeah it's gonna be our official you know radio silence stance on this <laughs> yeah I've decided sorry guys. what to do with leftover placentas <laughs> of course <laughs> No, but we do look at them and we, so we can collect from, if they've got preeclampsia, we can collect from those. We can also, I guess, stimulate inflammation to placental tissue and then we test our drugs Mm -hmm. in that as well. Um, Another thing that I look at is more vascular side of things Mm -hmm. um, because it is the maternal sort of disease of having high blood pressure. And when we look at high blood pressure, the vessels in the maternal system are probably really constricted. Mm. So they're like not prone to dilation, which in pregnancy, the blood volume increases quite significantly. And then if you also have your Mm. blood vessels constricting, that's why they get this really high blood pressure. Mm. So finding drugs that dilate them or stop them from constricting is really what we're looking for. And what I can do is during cesarean sections, so they make the incision sort of down in the lower abdomen Mm -hmm. you have a layer of fat called the omentum that lays over your abdomen and we actually collect some of that that contains blood vessels and i can then dissect those out and test our drugs on them and see how they constrict Uh. and dilate so that's that's another thing that we do (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's um not many people do it and it's sort of started in the cardiovascular field and now um a number of us around the world can do it but it's yeah it's quite tricky and they're vessels if you drew a pen line that's probably how big they are and then yeah yeah um it involves threading wire through the vessels so they're oh about gosh. the size of your hair and no. you can't damage <laughs> like threading a needle yeah. but 
it's far worse oh. doing that now is quite easy for me but yeah it's all under a Gosh, microscope i absolutely um, do not have the like my hands are too shaky <laughs> i cannot i don't have the fine motor control for it that. took a couple of months to learn yeah. and it was wow. quite excruciating for the start but yeah it's it's really cool um and there are other types of machines where you can actually look at um flow going through a vessel and how it constricts um, the way we do it is we measure force that's in the machine when mm-hmm. it constricts, if it increases. Um, but yeah, that's there's so many different ways that we look at um, how medications can work in different aspects. Um, I guess with pregnancy with drugs, you want to improve the maternal system, but we also have to consider that you don't want to have any fetal effects as well Mm. um which is a huge issue which is why we like to repurpose drugs so we pick drugs that are used for other things that are used in pregnancy and try to see if they will also work for for example preeclampsia okay so there's not necessarily things that you think will work it's like this is used for something else let's just see what it does (laughs) well we look at it in the lab and so we'll look at things that so in preeclampsia we think that during the formation of the placenta the blood supply is lacking and it will Mm -hmm. release toxins so we can look at inducing sort of a low oxygen environment to placental tissue and then look at toxins that we know it releases in response and then you can add your drug say in the dish or Mm -hmm. um then i look at it in the vessel model and see if Mm. it can dilate Um, then we look at it um, in cell models as well and then it when we see that it starts having better effects than what's used currently in those models Mm -hmm. then we we're lucky that we're at a hospital and we have connections in South Africa and around the world as well they'll then be more inclined to implement it in the clinic if it's already being used during pregnancy and they see that there's yeah. No detrimental you don't effects. need to get like approval for a new drug if you've got one that's already yeah. being used and you cut the time of how long it takes to go through a clinical trial yeah. by yeah. doing that so an example is isomeprazole is a proton pump inhibitor so that's used for gastric reflux which mm-hmm. a lot of women get during pregnancy and that's now in clinical trials um, another one is metformin used for diabetes mm-hmm also in pregnancy and that's now in clinical trials as well so it's now just mainly looking at their efficacy against disease rather than still safety profile but that's Mm. less of a concern now yeah and i guess that gets you around any sort of like I don't know, ethical issues of do we prioritize the life of the fetus or the parent in this situation? It's quite like a long-term effect that you're looking at because it's not only when it's born, but for the rest Mm. of the baby's life, are you having an effect with that medication? Yeah, that's true. Um, And there's a lot of research on developmental um, science, not only within that fetus, but then the next one after that, Mm. that Mm. their fertility and, and health. Yeah. Yeah, it's super interesting. Gosh. And Yana, you go. I was going to say the other one that you mentioned was a diabetes. Metformin, yes. So that's used in diabetes um, and women with, I guess, type 1 or type 2 and also in gestational diabetes as well. So that's sort of why I'm looking at both is women that have gestational diabetes are also more likely to get preeclampsia in the same pregnancy yeah, okay oh that's so is gestational diabetes like diabetes you just get when you're pregnant yes okay. yes so you get really high blood glucose during your pregnancy but you wouldn't have had that prior and that just goes away it, afterwards yeah. i was gonna say does it go away or do yes you then... but then they're more likely to get diabetes right. later on in their life okay type two yes yeah yeah, yeah. so okay. and 
so is their baby. So say, do uh. we think that that's because of this gestational uh, diabetes? So like yeah. if they hadn't gotten pregnant, maybe they wouldn't be more likely later? Or is it just that these people were already more likely to develop diabetes and like something about the pregnancy just fast tracked that or fast yes. forward? Or just like process? made it obvious earlier? Yeah. So it's under debate yeah. <laughs> um, and particularly with preeclampsia as well. I mean, those women are five times more likely to get cardiovascular disease after that pregnancy, even yeah, if okay. the symptoms alleviate afterwards. Right. Um, so it's either that potentially the pregnancy or the placenta itself is damaging the maternal system and the same in gestational diabetes, I guess, is mm. the metabolic syndrome is altering the mother's cardiovascular um, system but people also think that maybe there is something underlying and it's a small trigger that we see in the pregnancy. Mm. And it's a bit concerning that I don't think it's used enough in the clinic to sort of identify that those women should be um, sort of looked at and follow mm. through after the Followed pregnancy yeah. to make sure it's prevented later in life. Um, and there's some long-term studies that we do some, but um, there are other groups that look at it more intensely in how we can actually not only improve the pregnancy but also her later in her life in not developing mm -hmm. cardiovascular disease because that's a huge um mm. i guess burden on our healthcare system mm, already definitely. is cvd mm. um so if we can reduce that at all that would be really good and i guess it kind of feeds in that research typically has been done in men and we try to treat women the same so yeah. mm. is this it, definitely <laughs> a problem that i've noted like that that exists in neuroscience that we're only just starting to realize that there are like sex differences because yeah. for so long just all research was done exclusively in males yeah. and we were just like yes this is applicable to every human on this planet it, yeah it still boggles me that that seemed like a good idea at the time have you met men <laughs> um they are the most important species <laughs> apparently <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite yeah. scary. And yeah, same with cardiovascular disease. I guess this is outside of pregnancy, but mm. studies have looked at in hospitals their like admission rates, treatments and when they how long it takes for them to be um to leave hospital and then their outcomes afterwards are always worse in women. Mm. Um and it makes a lot of sense if you're if there are sex differences and you're treating them the yeah. same. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks for that, Bianca. That was okay. really fascinating. Um, so we've got another song. This, of course, is Baby by Justin Bieber. You are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder, where we are bringing the science of babies <laughs> into focus this sure lovely are. Friday afternoon. Uh, very fittingly, that was, in fact, Baby by Justin Bieber. Kai. Hit us with some baby science. Baby science. Well, I'm not a baby scientist. I study physics. Mm -hmm. And whenever I tell people that, some like people are like, whoa, physics, that must be like so hard. Really? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> some people do. Obviously not, you know, other scientists, but no. um, some people do it. I just said really without thinking. I apologize formally to any physicists listening to this show right now. I no, think no. physics is great. It's really it's challenging. Great. No, you don't have to apologize okay. for thinking it's not challenging because I reckon understanding physics is easy. Okay. Because babies can do it. Okay, here, this is where this is going. <laughs> babies right. are better than me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is because like a basic and intuitive understanding of physics is pretty vital for living in the world. Like, let's give some examples. Um, you need to know that things fall when you drop them. I mean, it helps. I'm it helps. Sure, like, to know yeah, that. It, um, 
You need to know that heavy objects are harder to move than lighter objects. Like it takes more yeah, you've force got to, to accelerate them by the units. same amount. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the physicist and the biologist explaining yeah. the same concept. Oh, that's pretty funny. <laughs> more motor units required to lift heavier objects. Yes. Yeah, that's it. Uh-huh. Um, so these are all things that like everyone knows intuitively, even if you don't know how to explain it like a physicist would. Mm-hmm. So, and these are the sorts of things that you pick up when you're a baby. Okay. And scientists have found that babies start to grasp basic physics from about two months old. You seem unconvinced? I I just... When you say grasp basic (laughs) physics, because like... Okay, so what, what, how, what I'm how saying... How do they test this? Like, like how did they, did they just go, oh, the, the baby moved out of the way when a falling thing <laughs> was falling towards them? No, because I don't even think babies can move that much at two months old. I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> the bottle that they're holding is too heavy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the reason the two months old is like this point where they start, re- like, you know, they've got data from two months old mm-hmm. is because this is the point where babies start to consistently track the movement of objects with their eyes. Yeah, right. So they've obviously like developed enough, I don't know, control over their bodies and mm-hmm. understand or awareness of the world to actually be able to look at things and follow them around as they move. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know, so a newborn can... baby sort of just lies there and does nothing. Yeah. But two months it's probably old, just it's probably doing a lot actually. <laughs> probably. The poor thing. Like let's let's give them some Spring credit. To Processing the fact that the world now has light first yeah. of all uh, and sound uh, and breathing air. And- gosh, they, emotions. They're they, a thing. Like you just they can hear in your utero though, so maybe not sound. Oh yeah. Okay. True. Actually, <laughs> just light. Yeah. Light's enough, though. I mean, there's probably a bit of light in the uterus as well. Like it just gets through. Yeah, Humans not are not completely though. opaque. I don't don't know. know. I've I've heard there's like enough light inside your skull to read. Like it's it's actually just. I haven't fact checked this, so I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But like you hold your hand up to light and you can sort of see through it a bit. Yeah, no, no, I can can see that. (laughs) Anyway. um, But still, I reckon let's. Everything's intensity has been like, you know, dialed up to. Absolutely. We can agree on that. Um, yeah, so the reason that two months old is when they start experimenting on babies. I mean, I'm sure they experiment earlier, but like, <laughs> are we too scientific for this topic? Like, people are absolutely, upset. we are. Let's go. Um, anyway, they can do eye tracking experiments on babies once they start to track things with their eyes. So, like, you're looking at the movement of the baby's eyes, mm-hmm. and you yep. can see what it's looking at, and you can tell what it's focusing, and you can tell its what it's focusing on. its attention yep. on. And that's absolutely how they yeah, okay. test whether babies understand physics or not. And some of the ways they do this is they show them videos. Do they videos. give them a multiple choice quiz and like look at the correct answer? No, they... E they... equals MC squared cubed. Yeah. They like will show them a video of something happening and it might be like dropping a ball. Okay. And the baby is going to watch the video and it'll see someone drop a ball and it's like, yeah, what of it? And doesn't really focus on it that much. It's mm-hmm. like, this is a normal occurrence. Mm-hmm. But if they see a video of someone dropping a ball and the ball magically stays suspended in midair... The babies oh, the pay babies attention. Bamboozled. They're like, "What is going on? This is oh, not." Oh, okay. This, this is interesting. does not follow is... my understanding of the world at all, and they're like really focused on my two-month-old understanding of the world. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it'd be like a new bit of information that they're then like trying to, trying to like integrate into their like current model of existence. Yeah, it's that it's they're like still forming. Like... Yeah, they're doing science their whole lives. Um, <sighs> babies, <laughs> so impressive. <laughs> So little like, mega minds. 
Um, yeah, so that just tells us that from two months old, babies have a pretty good idea of the consequences of gravity, even if they're not like even trying to walk at this stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yep, I will give you that. That <laughs> they have an understanding that. Yeah. No. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, and something else that I think is pretty funny is that at the same age, babies gain the understanding that hidden objects continue to exist. Now, I've, I've heard people... Object permanence. I was going to say, I don't even have this ability. Like, I, if some out of sight, out of mind. Like, I, do you know how often I find, like, very dead vegetables in that drawer in the bottom drawer of the fridge? Because it's a drawer. So, I, when I open the fridge, I don't see them. So, they yeah. don't exist, Kai. Oh, well, maybe you didn't learn this at two months old. <laughs> but I've heard that, like, the reason it's so fun to play peekaboo with babies is because when they, like, can't see you, they mm, think you, you just cease to you exist. Cease to exist. Um, it seems very logical to me. <laughs> Well, it's it's true. Things do still ex- exist when you can't see them. And they did these same tests where with eye tracking, like they would mm-hmm. put an object in a box mm-hmm. and the baby would like follow the object around even if they move the box. Did they do the like, I'm going to put this ball under one of these three cups, <laughs> follow it with your eye yeah. now point like, or look at, sorry, because eye movement, look at which cup has the ball under it. Not because that sure, would be... but that would be pretty funny to do. Absolutely. I want to do this. <laughs> So that's two-month-old babies. At around five months old, they get a little bit more knowledge. And a recent study looked at how they understand solids and liquids. Okay. And they found, like, the the experiment that they did was they presented the babies with what looked like a liquid. Mm -hmm. So it was like, they called it this blue liquid. So I assume it's probably like milk with blue food dye or something in it, in a jar or like a container. So like not a transparent liquid. Not a transparent liquid. liquid. Yeah, yeah. Because that was going to be my next question. And they could see it's like sloshing around. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they... Once they got used to the idea that this blue liquid was a liquid, they're like, mm-hmm. yep, if, it, if you tip the glass and it moves around, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But then they tricked the babies and they swapped it out for something that looked identical but was a solid. Oh, right, yep. And the baby like looks at the, at the thing and is like, yep, that's a glass of blue liquid. Mm-hmm. And then they tip the glass and it doesn't like slosh it around. It's sort of still in like its solid form and the babies again... They like freak out and yeah. they're like, whoa, what is I, happening I, here? I would too. Maybe I do understand <laughs> physics. <laughs> uh, but what's really cool is that they weren't just, it wasn't just like this tipping, but they had a better understanding of how liquids work. Like if you submerge something in it, like you put a straw in the liquid, mm-hmm. they understood, yeah, straws go in liquid. That's, that's how liquid works. It moves out of the way. Mm. And then when you try and squirt, like squeeze a straw into solid, they go, whoa, that's... What are you doing? <laughs> you don't is... drink solids, man. <laughs> um, and they did some other stuff where they like didn't just use liquids. They used like glass beads and sand, which mm. kind of behave like a liquid in that they mm-hmm. sort of, you can tip them around. And the babies also got the, un- like figured out how they worked mm. and whether they were more like a liquid or more like a solid. That's, Wow. And this is at like five months old. This is at five months old. And is this ca- like, where did they get their, where did they get their babies? <laughs> sounds, but like, did they go to some like, you know. Baby genius factory. Well, and- <laughs> you know, I was going to say. They're all in a white socioeconomic <laughs> area is actually what I was going to say. I don't baby know where they got their babies. Factory, but-, but it makes sense that they would understand fluids because they eat liquids. Yeah. They yeah. bathe in liquids. Like they're exposed to fluids. Yeah. So it makes sense that they kind of the get an understanding. <laughs> Yeah, they develop in a sack of fluid. Um, so it makes sense, right? That you'd have like, you'd have to develop. Evolutionarily, that would be something that you'd you develop, have to develop pretty early. develop some understanding. A, of, yeah, intu- yeah. In- intuitive? Is that mm, a word? I think intu- so. A- Intuition for how liquids work. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, but yeah, one last thing. 
Like a lot of people say, oh yeah, all that baby physics, that's just easy. I totally understand how that works. <laughs> physics is hard because of maths, right? And I'm here okay. to tell you that babies start developing some maths ability no. from around six months old. Okay. Are we talking like one plus one equals two or are we talking? It's more like this container has more food in it than that container. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. And, you know. Are we calling that maths now? It's the most fundamental like <laughs> maths. Okay. Yeah. Like, cool. I'm really good at maths. I can tell <laughs> when something has more things when in something it. Has than, more, yeah, yeah. So you're doing better than babies. It wasn't, wasn't so bad after all. I'm glad um, that we've come out of this with the conclusion that I'm doing better than babies. <laughs> yeah, uni degree worked. Well. It was stressful for a second there, but I'm yeah, glad. Well, that we... we got there, so yeah. Cool. Well, with that, we've got yet another song for you that is right on theme. Check Yes Juliet, Run Baby Run by We the Kings. Welcome back to Radio Silence. We're bringing science into focus. That was Check Yes Juliet by We the Kings. And today we're talking science of babies. And Kate, our resident baby <laughs> lover, is going to tell us something. So, babies, why do they put everything in their mouths? A true mystery. Like, because they really do though, right? This is, <laughs> this, is actually, this is actually a thing. It's called mouthing or baby mouthing. And it's considered a very normal thing to do and can be actually very good for the baby's health. So okay. I just want to get that out of the way straight away. Good thing. Don't don't get mad at your kids for putting, you know, babies. I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions to that. Things you really well, don't want them to put in their mouths. But... Yes, obviously. <laughs> obviously there are exceptions. Be careful if your baby is putting small objects that are choking size in their mouth. <laughs> be careful if they're picking up, you know, poison and putting it in their mouth you know there are exceptions but uh generally just you know in terms of like everyday objects like they might i was gonna say pick up your phone because that's what's in front of me and put it in their mouth i if you've got a water resistant phone maybe it's fine (laughs) um but you know just general sort of like they're baby toys toys and stuff that they pick up yeah um and like but but why but why (laughs) do they do this right and before i get into sort of the main theories we have today about why this happens i want to give a bit of history because because this is something Freud had a lot of thoughts on. Okay, here we um, go. So I think most people have probably heard of Freud. Um, but just in case, I am talking about Sigmund Freud, a neurologist, psychoanalyst uh, from the early 1900s here. A lot of his ideas today, some people still think have more legs than they possibly do. But like, regardless of where you stand on his ideas today, it would be remiss to acknowledge like the contribution that he made in terms of like a, a building point, a spring off point, mm-hmm. And in terms of like a lot of psychological sort of theories that we have today stemmed from yeah. some not so correct ideas that he had, but <laughs> he noticed this phenomenon, this mouthing phenomenon. And as he tended to do, uh, he theorized it was to do with sex. Um, shocking for anyone that's heard any <laughs> Freud anything. Um, but essentially he came up with this theory of psychosexual development in uh, 1905, which Essentially, there are five different stages across different ages, and each like stage of development um, is associated with a different body part that he called the erogenous zone for that particular age group. So age zero to one is the oral stage, so mouth mm-hmm. makes sense. We'll get to that. There's also then the anal stage, the phallic stage. But anyway, point is, they went through pretty much to like puberty, and then the last stage was just like puberty onwards, one, one stage. So then yep. there was another guy that came along in the 1950s, Eric Erickson, which is just chef's kiss of a name. Um, so Eric Erickson built upon Freud's theory and he had a similar uh, psychosocial development theory, less focused on specific erogenous zones and more based around the idea that like at each life stage, people encounter different needs, ask new questions, meet new people who influence their behavior and their mm-hmm. learning. Um, also, he's had eight stages because he didn't just lump puberty onwards as one stage. He kind of like breaks it down a little bit more. But essentially... 
The important thing about both these guys is they believed that all of your pleasure and purpose in life at, at baby age, at age zero, zero to one for Freud, zero to 18 months, the oral sensory stage is stage one for Ericsson as well, mm-hmm. first 18 months. Um, so in that first year to year and a half, they believed that, yeah, all your pleasure and purpose in life is to do with your mouth and feeding. Which, like, has some logic behind it, like, giving this mouthing behavior we see, and also the fact that getting food is probably one of the earliest physiological needs that we have as human beings, right? But then they went to say it all has to do with this, like, trust, mistrust, and whether you can trust your parent to feed you, specifically the mother, actually, because these theories were, like, super sexist and super (laughs) racist, because they were all based on observations these guys made of... Western white male babies, as we kind of alluded to uh, earlier, a lot of uh, a lot of science, yeah. But essentially, that aside, the the gist of this like basic trust mistrust idea is that as infants, we ask ourselves whether we can trust the world and wonder if it's safe. Right? We learn <laughs> that if we can trust someone now, we can also trust others in the future. And if we experience fear, then we can develop doubt and mistrust. And all of this, according to these guys, comes down in this first year to year and a half. To whether the mother feeds the baby well enough slash how stimulated the mouth is. Um, And they claimed that trauma at this time can explain the development of things like trust issues later on. Like if the mother doesn't feed the baby or the baby doesn't get enough mouthing early on, that that can explain trust issues later in life. Or or even better, as an addiction uh, neuroscientist, I loved this one. It can explain the development of smoking addiction later on because you develop this oral fixation, this need for oral stimulation (laughs) due to trauma at this like zero to 12 months oral okay it's not the nicotine <laughs> so no not at all not not the fact that nicotine is incredibly addictive as a substance um no importantly i just i want to bring this up because like none of this can be empirically tested and on top of just being yeah obviously racist and sexist they fail to explain so many things such as the complexity of sexuality gender identity and like as such these theories have been widely widely criticized by the scientific community yep. but some people still buy into them and they still get a lot of kind of like airtime i remember learning about this stuff in like undergrad psychology mm-hmm. which you know was a hot minute ago now but um yeah like i it's still you know so i just wanted to highlight that you know these things exist but like they're no uh, problematic as theories so mm-hmm. with our healthy skepticism equipped i've got some current theories um about why the heck babies do this um <laughs> so potential reason number 1 This is literally just how babies are exploring the world, right? So we, as in grown humans, um, predominantly use our hands to feel objects and learn about the world. So like Mm -hmm. if you were handed, like if if an alien came down and had like this brand new strange object that you'd never seen before and handed it to you, like you'd look at it, but you'd also probably turn it over in your hands Mm. and feel the shape and stuff because, you know, there have been several studies showing the importance of touch signals in facilitating object recognition. It's like in our brain, like the way we process objects and recognize objects, like we take on information about shape, temperature, texture, like all of that information is like brought on by the brain and the brain stores it. And it really helps us understand the world around us, like probably more than we give it credit. Right. But like it is, it is very important. And so, you know, in non-baby humans, we have a lot of touch receptors in the hand, so it's the most logical place to do it. Plus, we're like dexterous and we can run our hands mm. over things. But think about baby hands. Like, just picture <laughs> some little, like, chubby, tiny little things, right? Not not super dexterous yet. Can't actually do much with them beyond like grasp object finger. put in mouth, right? <laughs> like that's kind of that's kind of it. Yeah. Whereas the mouth is another place that has heaps of touch receptors, like your mouth and your lips. Like, think about it. You've got, you're, that's a very sensitive area. So we could also probably use our mouths, but we don't. Um, <laughs> but baby mouths and lips are also, yeah, full of these sensory nerves. And so they can still get this shape, temperature, texture information that's so vital to the way that 
human brain has evolved to learn about things. Um, so yeah, given babies are by literal definition new to the world, um, there will be lots of brand new or alien seeming objects that mm. they need to like gather data on. So this like mouthing behavior is literally just like how they learn. That's probably the most likely strongest theory that we have today. Um, mm. But as with most things, like it's never just a like, why do babies do X? Like one, one simple answer, straightforward. Like there's probably, there are several theories that all like possibly contribute a little bit. So another potential reason is that like growing babies are hungry, mm -hmm. right? So like growing requires energy, requires food, leads to hunger, you know? And then they probably learn very early on that food goes in mouth, yep. right? So there's that. But then on top of the fact that growing is the main task of a baby. So like, of course, there's a focus on this. Taste buds actually start forming like really early in pregnancy. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, resident uh, baby expert. Uh, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure developmentally, yeah. <laughs> taste buds are like one of the first things that form in pregnancy, especially the sweet ones. And that explains why babies we know have a massive sweet tooth and preference uh. for sweet things. And there's lots of like research into this. So some people think that babies might just be putting everything into their mouth because they're testing everything for sweetness sweetness and they just want to eat it so they're like is this toy sweet can i eat well we've already already established babies are mini scientists and want to experiment <laughs> well, on everything yeah so. exactly and so you know possibly that's like a contributing thing as yeah. well uh possible reason number three teething babies mm. are growing teeth and we probably don't remember what it felt like um but you can probably imagine that having a bunch of little bro bones breaking through <laughs> your gums and emerging simultaneously is like not super fun um, and we know that biting down on stuff can alleviate some of teething discomfort because A, it can act as a bit of a distraction, but also it actually helps reduce some of the pressure under the gums that okay. as the teeth come down. And like, it's the same with dogs, right? Like puppy, when a puppy is teething, you give them like, like a chew, chew toy everything. because yeah, yeah. that's, you know, so potentially babies are just teething and that's the only reason they're putting everything in their mouth. Not the only reason, but like perhaps a that's a contributing factor. factor. Yep. Exactly. Um, number four. And like the last one is self self soothing sorry which usually refers to like the sucking specifically like sucking on your thumb um but you know there's some evidence that biting as well can can do this especially if the baby's overwhelmed from all the emotional sort of like <laughs> stimulation of their environment right and because the jaw is like one of your most powerful muscles especially in babies right and so it actually it's a really good way to give the brain like a huge hit of sensory input that can be focused on yeah. and can like really and interestingly like i just want to say like older children and adults with autism like apparently this is this is a thing that is quite common emotion regulation uh. or stimming using like biting because mm. it can provide this really good source of like self-soothing helps consistent mm. with this theory that that's what babies are doing as well so well, there you go you know who knows but interesting well that's it for our episode all on baby science remember you can find our past episodes wherever you get your podcasts follow us on twitter at radio silence this is our last song baby got back by sir mix a lot <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>